Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome on this beautiful, beautiful spring day. I'm Lisa LaFontaine. I'm the CEO of the Humane Rescue Alliance. And I just want to give you a little disclaimer. Um, two weeks ago, I had uh, sinus surgery and a little bit of an internal um, reconstruction to remove some nasal blockages. I thought I would be fine by today, but it ended up being a little more involved than I thought. So um, so this is what you see. I actually feel better than I look, uh, but I wouldn't have missed this for anything. I am so excited to be here today with Barbara King, who is the Emerita Professor of Anthropology at William & Mary. And she's also a freelance science writer and public speaker. And you may know that Barbara is the author of seven books that focus on animal emotion and cognition and the ethics of our relationship with them and the evolutionary history of language, culture, and religion. Um, her book, How Animals Grieve, was translated into seven languages. And the TED Talk about animal love and grief has been seen by over 3 million viewers. And if you haven't seen it, I strongly, strongly encourage you to watch. Um, Barbara is a Guggenheim Fellowship recipient, and her work appears in Scientific American, NPR, and Undark. She's a regular book reviewer for NPR, The Washington Post, and the TLS. Today, we're going to be talking about her most recent work, which is Animals' Best Friends, Putting Compassion to Work for Animals in Captivity and in the Wild. And this, this is a beautiful book. It helps us to understand the inner lives of animals, the intricacies of their thoughts and emotions, and, and I think what I love the best is that it inspires us to connect with our compassion for them and to use that compassion that we have to, to better their lives in, in little ways and in big ways. And it's just a, a gorgeous combination of storytelling and science. Um, I think what I love most about it is how uplifting it is. This isn't a book that shames you or makes you feel bad. It, it's quite the contrary. It empowers you and fills you with a sense of uh, possibility and expansion of the things that you can do, whether it's rescuing a, a spider in your own home or using your voice at the ballot box. But, but I think the important thing is that all of us every day can get up and we can make different choices, small choices and big choices that turn our compassion into action and can really help um, not only make animals' lives, but in the process, I think, make our lives better as well. So welcome, Barbara. We are so glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much for that amazing and generous introduction, Lisa. It's greatly an honor for me. I know that we share the same goals very much, and I think the conversation is going to be a lot of fun. So thank yeah. you. Well, little, little known, most of the folks uh, who are stakeholders don't know this, but I was an anthropology and a journalism major in college. I, I always say that animal welfare work actually comes very naturally to me, although my career didn't unfold exactly as I thought. But speaking of careers, your, your book is a, a combination of it really tells your professional and your personal journey. Could you bring us back to the very beginning of your career when you were a grad student working in a zoo and just talk to us about how that experience shaped your life and your work? Yes, sure. And even before graduate school, you know, I, I fell in love with anthropology very late in college. And it was just an, an open revelation for me. The idea that I could spend my life studying, you know, at that time, monkeys and apes, our closest living relatives was just amazing. 
So when I went out to the University of Oklahoma from my home in New Jersey, I became very interested in cognition, how animals learn, how they use tools. And my first graduate fellowship was at the Oklahoma City Zoo studying two orangutans and their tool use. And I have some very vivid memories because I was housed in an active zoo building where in the basement, the necropsies were being done and it was very pungent, so I remember this. But it taught me, even at that very small scale as a novice starting out with just two great apes, it taught me to sit for long hours to really still my thoughts, to look, to take data from the ground up rather than imposing my own assumptions on what I thought these two animals should be doing. And the year after that, I was accepted for a graduate fellowship at the National Zoo in Washington, DC, again, to study orangutans. And my work evolved, but what was so interesting about that experience was that I was able in some cases to talk to staff biologists, zoo caretakers, sit in on meetings, and really understand a little bit about the complex decision-making that goes on in zoos. People sometimes think about cleaning cages and feeding animals, and those things are clearly important. But what I learned was how these are science-minded people reading the literature, making decisions about what animals should be transferred, which should stay with the group, when to intervene to break up some mild aggression, and when to let the animals you know, kind of go on their own. So it was very formative. But I have to say that at a certain point when I became a professor and I was taking my students to zoos, I began to ask some questions about ethics. And I began to ask not just about what the animals were doing in zoos and not just to have exercises for my students in terms of behavior, but to have us look at the ethics of captivity, to ask, is this okay what we're seeing? And that's led to you know, a lot of work in, in recent years. Did you expect that the ethics of this were gonna hit you as hard as they did? No, it was a very slow and gradual evolution. And I, it helped that I had experience at a number of different zoos. Mm -hmm. But at some point, the question that became overarching for me was, is captivity harmful itself? In other words, we can talk about bigger and better habitats and we can talk about conservation and animal ambassadors. But the question that came up for me again and again and again was at the end of the day when we go home after zoo workers, zoo visit, the animals don't 24 seven, 365 days a year. And so it seems to me that while zoos exist on a continuum, we have to be most concerned perhaps with very shoddy roadside zoos first and foremost, but even in so-called good research zoos, there's a lot of questions for me. I'm quite uncomfortable about captivity. I had an experience a couple of years ago. My, my husband, as a gift, got me um, a trip to an absolutely top-rate top organization that's rescuing animals from circuses. Hundreds of acres in California, absolute, just top-quality everything. But in getting ready to go, as I studied more about animal, uh, about elephants and the communities that they live in and the ways that mothers and grandmothers raise the young. I actually found it a heartbreaking experience, even in the midst of all that beauty, because the animals still weren't getting what they needed. I'm just curious about, you know, you talk a lot in the chapter on zoos about the cost benefit analysis. And I'm just wondering about 
your thoughts. You know, the, the argument is we need animal ambassadors or it advances the education of this, about the species. And I'm, I'm just curious to hear where you stand on that. Mm -hmm. Well, we all know people who say, oh, you know, I went to the zoo as a child and it opened up my life and it opened up, you know, my love of animals. But I keep coming back to that cost because to the animals, the animal ambassadors, to those individual lives, they're extremely constrained. Now, clearly the you know, hab wild habitats are not necessarily in great shape either. So this is, this is a, a convoluted question, but in the end, you know, captivity is not all the same. So when I think about sanctuaries, very good accredited sanctuaries, there the emphasis is on the animals first and foremost. And I think that is a difference. Yeah. Zoos may say that, but in the end of the day, I do think zoos are very largely about entertainment. There are so many incredible contradictions when you walk onto the campus, if you will, of a zoo, where you go and you, know, you want a lunch break and there's the chicken and the pig on the menu where you've just taken your child to the petting zoo, or you walk into the gift shop and there's plastic replicas of the elephants that you've just seen. And so in a good sanctuary, People come on a very, very limited basis. The emphasis is on the individual needs of the animal. And I do think it is possible to make a good life for animals under those situations. But my hope is not necessarily complete abolition of every zoo, but rather moving in the direction, say Detroit Zoo has moved more rescued animals, yeah. Uh, another option are more local animals instead of always going for the big furry stars like pandas and elephants and apes, which I don't think belong in zoos, to integrate some of the local ecology and have kids and their parents get excited about seeing local birds, local invertebrates, you know, animals that might, and I do stress might, be you know, more content in a sense to be in captivity. But I'm very much still on this journey of thinking this through. And I think that what we need to do is to not to say to parents and young kids, you know, never go to a zoo, but rather what I, the argument I developed in the book is that we can go with eyes wide open and speak up when we see things that are not right, when we can become, you know, consumers who refuse to spend dollars at the really shoddy zoos and have our eyes on the animals who's, of course, it's not their fault they're in captivity. We can still enjoy seeing them, but hold management accountable to the extent that we can for making their lives as good as they can and certainly not to just keep breeding endlessly. So I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one of the things I picked up on and what you're talking about is that um, on that continuum, I think the uh, economics have different, um, <laughs> different leverage points and different influences mm -hmm. if you move from sanctuary to for-profit zoo. Um, how much do you think that that money pressure affects all of this and the, the experience of the animals? Oh, I think it affects it greatly. Absolutely so. Spending, as one example, the Bronx Zoo did, this was years ago now, $43 million on um, you know, a new large mammal exhibit. I often wonder what could be done if that money was used differently. And then of course there's pressure to bring people in to make that money back. And that leads to all kinds of campaigns. And, and you know, another thing that I found when I was doing research for this book is even a very traditionally considered good zoo like the Columbus Zoo, they 
take their cheetahs out of the zoo and drive them around in vans to bring them to communities to show people what cheetahs look like. And I, I just think we need to, to not take for granted that zoos are necessarily set up for the good of animals. And it is again, that economic pressure. I know it's hard with the pandemic, but you know, to have people paying to come and see a cheetah on, on a leash in a, in a room is disturbing. Well, and I think that one of the underpinnings of that is uh, in a sanctuary where the animal is the individual focus, it engenders more respect for that animal and what he or she is capable of and what their natural behaviors are. And the thing that I think bothers me most about zoos or commercial enterprises is when you see animals being teased and just the lack of respect and the, la and the, the dissonance that that animal could kill you if that barrier wasn't between you and that the environment of a zoo, if it's not done right, um, completely skews that natural relationship of, of respect. Yes, I, to the extent that zoos are increasing the ability for animals to get away from the human gaze, I mean, that's one small step in the yeah. right direction. But of course, what we're really talking about here is the difference between animal welfare and animal rights. Right. Because with animal welfare, you make the cage bigger and better and you enrich the animal's life. And with animal rights, you ask, that should they be there at all? So I want to bring you back to as you were finishing this book and the pandemic is coming. Mm -hmm. And one of the big lessons from the pandemic is with the likelihood that the, the coronavirus originated in a wet market. You know, I think one of the small silver linings of, of COVID has been just a little bit of awareness with some more people that encroaching on habitats in encroaching on biodiverse areas and and certainly wet markets are things that people are learning more about and seeing what can happen when our contact with animals is either inappropriate or or, or we're encroaching on their habitats. And I just wonder how hopeful are you about some of that lesson of COVID reaching more people? Depends on the day you ask me, <laughs> I suppose. But yeah, you mentioned encroaching on habitats and that's so important and it's important when you combine it not only with live markets but animal agricultural generally because of course on these huge farms whether we call them factory farms or cafes or whatever we call them the proximity of thousands and thousands of animals you know jammed in together you don't even really need a live market right you just have to have this incredible density and this ability for a virus to jump species and i th i think that one thing I'd like to see more awareness about is where are live markets? Because I honestly see a, a very narrow cross-cultural view, and even in some cases, a little bit of a racist view of, you know, oh, live markets, look, they're Asian and they're Chinese. And that's, of course, not true at all. There are live markets there, there are live markets in New York, there's live markets in Philadelphia and San Francisco. And so I think we have to stop pushing that problem you know, away as a problem of otherness because that's not at all correct and realize that, that we are part of that. And that again, animal agriculture as a whole is opening us up the way that it is practiced to these problems. So I would like to look at, at that as a sort of systemic issue, food justice, social justice, all sort of together. How do you think that we can leverage this moment where people are learning more about this issue? I would like to see for, you know, very strong 
thematic hard looks at what we do now about animal agriculture, you know, at the political, governmental, global level. When we're talking about global warming and we're talking about climate initiatives now, this is the time to press hard. I mean, I'm sure your audience is well aware of statistics like this, but the global warming greenhouse gases are estimated to be 56% due to global animal agriculture. And you know, 83% of the world's farmland is used to produce meat and dairy. So I want to be hopeful about this issue. I think we just need all eyes on policymakers, government levels, business leaders, and individuals on knowing that reducing consumption of meat, dairy, and seafood is the way that every one of us, every single day, can help with this issue. And I, so I see this as all very much connected and I'm very, very committed to wanting to produce a sort of hopeful discourse where it's not only the world saved by vegans who have done so much to raise my awareness and have done so much for animals, but that all of us, wherever we fall on the continuum can make serious commitment to this issue. Mm-hmm. And choices, just different choices. I, I really appreciated that you mentioned in the book, the, the disconnect between when you're speaking at an event that is raising money for an animal shelter and animals are being eaten at the yes. event. And one thing at, at HRA that I'm really proud of is that we, we have a, a vegan food policy. We've had it as long as I've been here since 2007 that, um, that we do not serve animals. And you know, as we see that society is loving their pets more, putting them on social media, spending more money on them, what keeps us from making that connection between the pet that we love and sleep with and the animal who's suffering in a factory farm? Well, first of all, congratulations on being, you know, head of a curve and one of the first because that's wonderful. And it is very odd and disconnecting an experience to be talking about my work and being the person who's like with a little vegetarian you know, special box they make up or vegan box for me and everyone is, you know, so that's, that's, that's strange. You probably can't tell, but I'm really wearing a shirt. Have you hugged your chicken today? And so <laughs> that's right in line with this question. You know, the, the why is, is hard for yeah. me to, to know why I think back to when I first went to Africa and I was getting ready to study non-human primates. And this was in my graduate career, flowing from those early experiences that we had talked about. So this was a little bit later. And I went out for lunch with my colleagues and I was asked at this really cool little African restaurant, would I like a monkey for lunch? And I said, no, thank you. I'm here in your country to study monkeys and I, you know, I don't eat monkeys. And the man said to me, well, what would you like? And I said, how about a chicken? Of course, that's a long time ago now. I don't eat chickens now. I don't eat animals now, but I did then. So what was it in me that could see a monkey with, you know, sort of gasping with, you know, I don't eat this. And then I did consume that chicken. So that's changed for me. And I think what is changing for people, I absolutely believe the more that we tell stories about the thinking and feeling of these creatures, the more that we reach people, and I I have to be careful here because I don't want to suggest that an animal has to meet a human standard of thinking or feeling to be worthy because, you know, we'll get to my love of invertebrates, I'm sure at some point, but, but rather that when people know and understand 
the types of memory feats that chickens can carry out and the personalities of pigs and you know the love of dairy cows for their, their children, their, their offspring. I do think that helps close the gap. You know, one of the things that I've, I've been saying is that we like our elephants and chimpanzees smart and we like our chickens and cows dumb because we want to not have to think about that. But I do think it is changing, it's changing slowly. And so there's a whole group of us, activists and scientists together, working to, to see who these animals are and ask the questions that we never asked before about how they live, really. Yeah, my, my personal experience, um, I, uh, I stopped eating meat in 2000 and it was, I was just starting out working in a shelter and I hadn't made that connection. And um, we were working so hard to teach the dogs to sit and to give a paw. And we had this little piglet come in and someone had trained the piglet to give hoof. And I just remember looking at little Harley lifting his hoof up the same way that the dogs had just lifted their paw up. And it was just that little moment. Um, and I, I think that, again, the thing that I really love about your book is the fact that you focus on empowering and hopefulness and just getting people to think and to think about what they're doing and what they're choosing. And, you know, if we can just start people thinking in increments, um, I mean, the meatless Mondays and those things have helped a lot, but, you know, what other incremental behaviors would you offer um, that, that we could get up tomorrow and start doing? Well, I give a lot of credit to Brian Cateman, who's a colleague and a friend who founded the Reducitarian Foundation. Mm -hmm. And one thing that he says, I've been to conferences, he's organized read books and talked to him, is that, you know, we're in this together and it's not a totally either or choice for all of us. So I think that in some cases, people who don't necessarily feel completely ready to go vegan may feel a little bit like, well, you know, what's the point? And what I'm, what I'm here to say is the, is the point is vast. So, you know, in the next room, I have all kinds of non-dairy ice cream and butter and milk and yogurt and plant-based meals. And so I just think that trying some of the absolutely delicious food, talking to people who know how to make recipes and learning how to do that is just really important. And it's a very friendly community that, that I find. So, you know, I'd like to make a distinction between being vegan and being plant-based. I'm a hundred, I'd like to be a hundred percent plant-based. I'm not quite there. I'm almost there. And what I find is that when I talk to a lot of vegan activists, they're very, you know, understanding of, of the fact that I'm not necessarily 100% and welcoming and not shaming and teaching me things. And that's kind of what I'd like to do. So, you know, being vegan is a lifestyle. It's an ethical lifestyle. It's a full choice to support animals in every single way. And that's, I'm aspiring to, I'm not quite there yet. And I hope that the fact that I'm kind of on this journey myself, you know, gives a sense of humility and, and just say, so it, in other words, it's like I'm saying, you know, try these delicious foods, but I'm also saying, you know, open yourself up to talking to people who are maybe eating a little differently than you are and see, you know, have these conversations and go and learn at some of the places that are doing these things like reducitarian conferences, vegan conferences, farm sanctuaries, you know, it's, it's, it's all of a piece. So I mentioned, I mentioned in the beginning, um, that we can start by just saving spiders in our house. And 
And for those who haven't read the book, there are stories of what you can just start doing at home. And I wonder if you could just elaborate a little on and some of the, the choices we can make to help other than um, other animals. Yeah, if I can, I'm going to sure. see if I can share my screen okay. and show some slides. Great. Um, let's see how this will go. Okay. So I'm going to get to spiders, but I thought I would start by talking about cats, if that's okay with you, and then get to spiders. And then we can come <laughs> back to cats. But we have in our house seven rescued cats, and these were mostly, although not entirely, cats we uh, found abandoned at a local feral colony. So you see Marie on the left and Diana on the right as representatives of our house. And so for most people, it's kind of easy and wonderful and warm to be compassionate to our animal companions, who are our mammals, rabbits, birds too. Sometimes it's a lot of work and I don't have to tell you that because you and probably everybody who's listening has experience in one way or another about animal rescue. And I just thought I would um, show you a picture of the cat that has been, I, I wouldn't say challenging for, for compassion, but has taken a great deal of time and love. This is Kaylee, who is the white cat on the left in the top slide. And she was with us for many years with her sister, Haley, on the right. They were extremely close, two loving sisters. And unfortunately, when Haley developed cancer, we did have to put her down humanely. And this left Kaylee on her own. And we decided to try to bring her indoors from the outdoor shelter that we had. And we're very experienced cat rescuers, but somehow when we brought her into this house and kept her in a room, she had a terrible fall. And even for someone like me who doesn't read x-rays, I can see that this broken femur is a really bad broken femur. So we have spent lots of time and, and effort to get her healed. You can see her now, this was taken recently in my study on the pillow. She's without her sister, but she is adjusting to life indoors. She had to have both ears partially amputated due to cat cancer and the whole femur thing has been happening. But you know, people just sort of feel an upwelling with dogs, cats, rabbits to do this kind of thing. And I really wanted to, to challenge myself a little bit. So during the pandemic, I became obsessed with birds and you had mentioned this a little bit in the beginning. And there's a female red-bellied woodpecker on the left and a northern cardinal male on the right. There's a beautiful, beautiful northern flicker here. There's 41 species I never knew before in my yard. So I think that I am a living embodiment of what we know, that there's no such thing as a cat and bird binary, right? These things yep. can exist together. But what was really different for me was starting to think differently about spiders. And in the book, I start talking about spiders fairly early. And I talk about how I was raised in the 60s with parents who just didn't like bugs in the house and they were just bugs, whether it was an insect or a spider, you just squish them with, you know, whatever you had, a tissue. And I've done that, you know, years ago, five years ago, I was doing that. And then I started to really think about the continuum again of animals and what compassion means. And I started looking and reading about animals and I suddenly fell in love with spiders. I never in a million years would have predicted this. So this is in my yard. This is a little jumping spider on the left, a salt is seated. 
who came up to me one day when I was reading in the backyard and I began to learn about their eyes and their behavior and just joined a Facebook jumping spider group and no, great. Then I started watching the garden spiders or writhing spiders, the orb weavers that come to Virginia and probably to DC in August and September. And I named this spider Portia after a science fiction novel I was reading. And you can see she's got a pretty good dinner here. Yeah. And I no longer would think to kill a spider. Um, rescuing spiders is something that my husband and I have done for some time. But it also occurred to me through reading, thinking, and talking to arachnologists that taking the spider out of your house isn't always the best thing because it may not be where they choose to be. Now, yeah. clearly, I'm not going to have huge venomous spiders in my house, but some of the little ones, they just coexist with us now. And one of the favorite signs my husband's ever made was warning, don't bother spider. And that's now, I want a t-shirt that says, don't bother spider. This large spider had a huge web across our porch and we just didn't want anyone bothering the spider. So I think that for me, this pushed me to learn about spiders and to think differently about what compassion means for the littlest lives among us, as well as, you know, we talked about the elephants and chimpanzees, farm animals, but to really kind of think about it at scale, what is the cuteness scale? You know, how can you read about science and, and learn a lot more? So would you please go back two slides to the, the yeah. two spiders? Yeah. So one of the things that strikes me, I mean, that's a spectacular photo on the left and you can just see the individuality and almost the expression yeah. of that spider. And uh, you know, that I think is, one of the lessons of the book, right, is just to look for these things, to look. I mean, you you capture this in just a snapshot moment of time, but you you feel a connection to that spider when you look at that photo. Um, yeah, and didn't I just read that you all took in tarantulas re yeah. recently? Because I was, you know, reading on your website, I mean, one thing that resonated so much for me is, you know, we take in all animals and yes, we mean that. And that is a very interesting parallel to what I'm talking about, that if I'm going to write about compassion, I can't stop with compassion for cats, dogs, farm animals. And it really has opened up my life in a very joyful way because I do now spend time, you know, the, the jumping spider was just a fortuitous encounter. So now I'm always hanging around looking for them outside and I do see them. But at least in, in August and September, I can plan on the orb weavers. And so I know I can sit and look and how they make their web and how they mate and, and what they're doing and all of these things. It's just quite fascinating. For us, I mean, it not only does it, I think it's a value that the folks who work here are very proud of, that we help all animals. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And I mean, right now we are housing um, pigeons that we rescued from a home in Northwest DC, who many of whom have never flown, um, ducks, rabbits. Um, we routinely have farm animals. And I mean, not only is it deeply satisfying to be able to meet each one and care for them, but you learn so much by trying to care for them. You learn about their likes and dislikes, their diets, their, um, their temperaments, their personalities, their what's safe and not safe. I'm so glad you used that word personalities. And your whole point is, is really reflective of 
of what I write about, when I went out to read about spiders, I just have a couple of words here, numeracy and VR experiments. And I learned that biologists in Costa Rica have, have found out experimentally that spiders have a rudimentary counting uh, capacity, that if you put them in a virtual reality environment on a little treadmill, they can make associations from the environment in which they've been living to what they see on the screen. Just there's, you know, they're thinking and they think with their webs. So there's extended cognition going on. And once you start to see that, I mean, there'd be, you know, this is exactly what you were asking me, you know, how, how can you start making differences? And for me, it was taking an animal that I have to say, I just had a fear and creeped out reaction to for so long. And one by one started to say, I'm going to look, I'm going to read, I'm going to learn. And it worked. I still sometimes, if I'm startled by a spider, it takes me a minute. You know, I, I, I feel very reactive sometimes, but I can now say, breathe, look, remember what you've learned. Remember that this is a life, that this is a thinking creature. So uh, snakes were that creature for me. And I've, I've made a similar journey to you. So you talk about your love of invertebrates and um, you, you talk about sea creatures in the book. Um, throughout, you refer to octopus, which is a, a creature that I just love. And I, you know, I think we're learning more and more about their intelligence. There's a, a film, My Octopus Teacher, that has, has brought this awareness to people. And um, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about your research into these animals. Yes, and anyone who watched the Academy Awards last night knows that My Octopus Teacher won the best documentary. So Did it, was, it really? Yeah. Oh, and, I'm um, so busy. I have, a, I have a complicated great. response to that because I was a great fan of a, the movie Crib Camp as well. But certainly My Octopus Teacher is now being discussed globally in a different way than it was even yesterday. So, so let me come over to this slide here. This is at the New England Aquarium in Boston. And I am meeting uh, a, a giant Pacific octopus. This happened a couple of years ago and I just was blown away because I have always read about how octopus, you know, they're so alien, they look so alien. And I did not have that experience. Clearly there's a very different body plan here. We're not dealing with a mammal or a bird or a reptile. But what I found was that this particular animal was um, called the professor, a male, was coming over to interact with me because he was curious and he tasted me with several of his arms and they are not correctly called tentacles, they're called arms. And we know that the brain of the octopus is distributed through the arms very largely so that when an octopus is touching you with an arm, this is part of a brain. And so it was just a, a blown away moment where I realized that I was having a brain-to-brain -brain moment with an invertebrate and octopus. I had known, of course, before that they use tools. Uh, for example, we'll take coconut shells from the ocean floor and make them into little shelters for themselves, you know, that they're thinking that they have chromatophores that cause them to flash their mood on their skin. So an engaged octopus can be very red and vibrant, whereas uh, a bored or sick octopus would look whiter and there is something I want to be sure to say about this slide. I was brought to the back of the aquarium by the aquarist who believed very strongly 
that this is enrichment for the octopus. In other words, it was important to me that I was doing this not for my entertainment, but because the man who was in charge of caretaking for this octopus had devoted his life, the last parts of his life, to understanding that octopus enjoy such encounters. I'm very much a fan of the notion that scientists should not be flashing pictures of themselves taking selfies with wildlife or you know, holding animals in the wild. And that's very much not what's going on here. I was asked to spend some moments interacting with the octopus for the sake of the octopus. And I just really wanted to make that clear. Well, and he's red, right? So he's engaged. Yes. yes. And, you know, I'm climbed, I've climbed up on a little tiny little ladder there. And the, you can see the man's hand next to me. And as this was happening, something you can't see in this particular picture is that there's the female octopus called Freya who spread out her arms and her mantle against the glass and, you know, in my terms, looked very attentive, very attuned. And we soon were asked to go spend some time with her. You know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't go so far as to project a state of jealousy onto an octopus because I don't know, but there was attunement and attention. There's a human doing something interesting here and I want a piece of that. And so that's what we went on to do after this. So I feel that there's such a wide range of fascinating invertebrates, but that octopus is kind of the gateway drug to invertebrates, if you will, because they just do fascinating things. And I do not want them to be used in laboratories, which is unfortunately a new trend. I am very against this gearing up of factory farm-like aquaculture for octopus. And part of what I want to do is to raise awareness that these things are happening and to say, haven't we learned you know, the mistakes that we've made from biomedical research with animals and with factory farming, eating animals at all, but factory farming at its worst, let's not go there with octopus. Could you tell us about the trend of using them in biomedical research? Yeah, there's um, a very interesting sort of special genetic pathway with um, RNA that some cephalopods have, and I'm not really biologically equipped to discuss the details, but they are, in other words, being used for genetic models. And they've always been used for things like possible regeneration of limbs. But some of the the work that I read, that I wrote about in my last book, Personalities on the Plate, The Lives and Minds of Animals We Eat, talked about how scientists will kind of, you know, lop off an arm and the octopus is then putting, you know, its mouth and grooming that, that area very clearly in distress. I mean, it's not as if these things are happening without cost to the octopus. And so now this is being ramped up even more and it's just something we don't we should not be supporting. So I think, you know, as someone that spends all of my life and my work really is my life, so all of my life thinking about animals and how to treat them with compassion and respect, I think one of the hardest frontiers to consider is biomedical research and the, the kind of zero sum game that gets set up that it's us or them. And I, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's happening with animals in biomedical research. Mm -hmm. What are some pathways to, to extract ourselves from that dependence? And, and what are some bright spots? Yeah, let me um, go to a slide here. I, this is going to lead me to biomedical research. I've spent the last 10 or 12 years very, very heavily focused on animal grief 
And this is a picture of an orca who many people may know, Tahlequah, who did a grief swim for a thousand miles in, in 2018. And the more I started to, to discover the wide range of emotions that animals feel, grief and love, a lot of the animals that feel those things are used in laboratory research. And I began to realize, you know, not only monkeys, but cats and dogs and rats and mice and ferrets and hamsters, that when one animal is harmed in a laboratory setting, the others who watch that and the family members of these animals are also harmed in this sort of a cascade of reverberation that is, is made me realize, again, just in lines of what we're talking about, the big brain mammals like this orca are very, very important for us to help, but it also cascades to many others. So we know, for example, that there are about 75,000 monkeys held in biomedical laboratories just in this country. And many of them are subjected to very, very harmful invasive procedures. So you asked me before, you know, uh, how do I feel about incremental steps and how do I feel about hope? And I think what we have to do in this case is again, a process of self-education to know that the best science that occurs is not animal model science. That when I did a really deep dive into the research for this book, that numbers were absolutely astonishing how rarely animal model science, biomedical science, translates to help for humans. So I originally found a number of 92% of animal testing fails to bring products to market that help animals, uh, help humans. And then I read that that's actually a wild underestimate. It's close to 96%. Now, my argument isn't that gosh, if it helps humans, it's all morally and ethically okay. It's not that at all, but rather to know that the two things coexist, this research that harms animals is also not helping us. It's this incredible culture that's self-replicating of animal models, animal models, big grants, big money. So I discuss in the book some of the ways that this is changing as people, doctors, and all kinds of lab scientists around the world are realizing that we need good science. And this could be, for example, organs on a chip. These are these really little uh, thumb drive size models that many scientists are now using where human cells, uh, can, for example, from the lung or from the liver can be grown on this little platform. They have these what are called microfluidic channels where they can grow these cells and subject them to environmental tests so that we know what drugs or other environmental changes affect human cells. Because we know, of course, that when you try to infect, uh, you try to have a mouse come down with Alzheimer's disease, it doesn't affect them in the same way that it affects humans. If you attempt to have a dog become a sufferer of uh, muscular dystrophy, it doesn't present in the same way. So the more that we can use these human cells, human tissue cultures, zero dose toxicity studies, where you start testing drugs on humans in very, very small amounts, there's a whole array of approaches that are more and more promising. It's just like I'm excited about more plant-based food coming, including cellular meat, I'm very excited about the advances in science. Do you think that we might see the elimination of biomedical research on animals in our lifetime? Well, you know, I'm in my 60s and <laughs> I don't know if, if that, I mean, I want to be aspirational and I want to work towards, towards that goal. 
I don't know. I, as an anthropologist, I look at the very deep-seated culture of animal models, and it's going to be tough because, you know, I have a passage in the book that says if there's one thing that I would ask people to understand is that in federal and university facilities, the ethical oversight is not what you probably think. The I've served on an animal ethical committee, and that's really a misnomer. It's not really what, what's being discussed and what's happening. Um, these grants are continuously awarded from scientists to scientists where the committees are stacked with people who are invested in these animal grants and animal models. And we have to kind of break that log jam before yeah. we're going to be making a lot of progress. I think we can make massive pro pro progress, whether we can actually shut down biomedical research, I don't know. So the, the, as with so many of these issues, there's a complex system. And yes, you know, I think the good thing about systems is you can find leverage points to take down a whole system by going after a part of the system. Um, Absolutely, and, and so, if, if people can read a little bit about some of these alternative scientific methods. And another thing that I ask people to do is when you see a really sexy headline in a newspaper or a magazine about some big breakthrough that was um, happened because of, of mice or because of dogs or because of monkeys, you know, really read the fine print, read the methodology and see, is that really a breakthrough and what had to happen to the animals to make that happen? Because a lot of times that's glossed over in the, in the science media. You don't really find out what has happened unless you really look because there's no gain for biomedical researchers using animals in transparency. So speaking of systems, one thing I, I promised we would talk about is uh, the system of cats and birds mm -hmm. and wild animals. Um, and you probably know that we're in the in the final stages of a three-year study, the DC Cat Count, yes. which yes, is bringing together wildlife biologists, um, conservationists, um, bird experts, cat experts, uh, animal welfare organizations. And, you know, we, we straddle that... Um, we straddle a line here because we do care for all animals. And so we take care of outdoor cats and indoor cats, but we also take care of wild animals and birds. And um, that was a really uncomfortable straddling for, for me as the, the lead executive of the organization who cares about all animals. And one of the, one of the real, um, the, the catalyst for the DC cat count is just to make sure that we really understand as much we can about not only the individual animals, but the system that they're in. And um, we felt like if we could understand that and if we could bring people to the table who historically weren't even speaking to each other and actually craft a project that we all had a stake in, um, that we were all curious about the findings and we, we made some values commitments to each other that we weren't gonna presuppose what the outcomes were gonna be. We weren't, um, we were gonna wait and see what the data told us. And we don't know what the data is gonna tell us because it's coming in in June. Um, but you know, you, you devote a chapter of your book to, to TNR and these complexities. And I just wondered if we could talk about that uh -huh. for a minute. Well, first of all, the DC cat count is awesome. And I'm really excited that you're doing this because I can just, I can only say with the highest praise that, you know, this is exactly what we need because with colleagues, um, I have been working hard on 
you know, asking people not to buy into the sensational demonization of community feral cats because the numbers are very, very sensationalized. They're very highly generalized. They're not tuned to local ecologies. What you're doing is very, very different and very necessary. So yes, let's talk about it. Yeah, you know, one of the things um, I remember thinking, if only we had data when everybody was coming at us mm -hmm. with all these um, all these binary issues in, in demonizing our outdoor cat program. It was just, if only we had data. And, and I can tell you one of the really, I mean, some early things we're seeing is that there are um, completely different, um, completely different lifestyle patterns for cats who live, live in areas of DC where there are natural predators and those who live in areas where they aren't. And I suppose that's an obvious, but it is something that you can see very clearly a very different lifestyle for those two groups of cats. Um, there aren't as many cats in some of the, um, the like Rock Creek Park and places where there are natural predators. Um, what, what do you say to people who try to demonize um, outdoor cat life? Well, my husband and I have been involved for 15 years, uh, originally in TNR and later in just bringing cats that came under threat in our community to our yard with a very massive outdoor shelter um, for them so they could be safe. I tell them that there are individual cats who, all of them, deserve compassion and love like any other animal that they are indeed obligate carnivores, that they are going to hunt, that I don't know of any person in my experience who wishes there to be multiplying more and more feral cats, but that we must not go to lethal management as the first line of defense. And that's what upsets me the most is that there has been, as you well know, a jump by certain um, groups and partners and individuals and books to suggest by any means necessary, quote unquote, we deal with this problem. There are so many other solutions that can be crafted due to local ecologies. And I'm not saying anything you don't know, but you know, wild dogs kill a lot of animals and they're not demonized in the same way. Humans are at the heart of so much of the habitat destruction. I mean, look what we're doing to the wetlands for birds and for wildlife. Right. So let's keep the, the focus on two things that Animals deserve compassion, and that includes these wonderful cats. You know, I used to bring people to our colony to say, yeah, you tell me about tired, old-looking, diseased cats. You look at my cats, and you see they're nothing like that. They are beautiful cats. They, just, they sometimes need medical help, and we give this, as do people. They sometimes are different personalities, as are people. And the, it's so easy to dismiss TNR because, you know, TNR can work if, it's, if we're all in. It needs commitment. It needs resources. It needs understanding of what you're doing locally, which is exactly what you're finding out. But, you know, half-hearted TNR doesn't work. Right. So, so yeah, you're going to go big or go home. That's right. And, <laughs> and so, I mean, my, my take-home points are, I guess, two or three. One fight against lethal management with specific practical suggestions and do the work. Two, um, to be a responsible cat owner, keep your cat inside. I do this, um, that we have, out of all the cats we've had over the last 20 years, we have one cat who 
spends part of the day outside for various complicated reasons. We're not happy about it. We give ourselves an A minus, all the other cats are completely inside. And three, understand that most of the cat people I know are highly compassionate about wildlife, birds, and small mammals, and that we are working on it. You know, I, I don't think that I would be in this work if it weren't for my relationship with outdoor cats. I grew up in New Hampshire and my mother um, said we were allergic to animals, which was kind of kind of like the 60s bugs in the house. Uh, she, yeah, yeah. she really didn't want them in the house. And clearly I'm not allergic to animals. Um, but the, the way that I connected with animals was the outdoor cats in my neighborhood. And I used to play with them and gave them names that, um, you know, were my own little names. And I have pictures of myself at three or four years old with outdoor cats. Mm -hmm. And they lived in a pretty inhospitable environment up in New Hampshire. Um, but they lived through the year and they made it work. And, um, and you know, I, I think that one slide that I have that I've always brought out is when, when people took shots at our TNR program, um, eradication of outdoor cats was the law of DC in 1929. Well, guess what? Between 1929 and 2009, eradication didn't work. So yep. we need different solutions. Um, As you probably know, there's a really good peer reviewed science study showing from a part of Australia that eradication didn't yep. work there either. Yep. And you know, I think what you and I are both saying is not that we're denying that outdoor cats have an impact. I think that that is yeah. also a misunderstanding. It's not a denial of that, it is a recognition of that. And that we are you know, working on both prongs at once, the responsible cat ownership, and also then how do we go with non-lethal management, TNR and other projects. You know, I, I have to give a true confession here um, because I've spent my career advocating for, for cats to be indoors and I, you know, I'm strong about that. I believe it. And I realized only after I had euthanized my 18 year old cat uh, about two years ago this month, um, what was the last thing I did in the last hour of her life? Because, um, you know, she had cancer and we made the decision to euthanize her. And so I was doing all the, what I thought were the best things in her last hour. One of them was to bring her outside. And I thought, wow, like that's really deep in me that I have been advocating for cats to be indoors and really believed it. But deep, deep in my heart or somewhere in my being, what I wanted to give to the cat I love most was time outside. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to confront these things in ourselves, these disconnects and juxtapositions and yes. even inner hypocrisies. Yes. Um, that's a big part of Animals Best Friends, my book, is to say that on some days when I'm frustrated, when someone that I had been talking to a lot tells me about this massive meat lunch that they ate, you know, happily, or someone goes against what I'm talking about cats, I realize too that, you know, I'm not perfect and that I, I struggle with some of the things that I still am learning about. And I think that this notion that we are in it together, yes. that we're all imperfect, but that we're, we're here because the animals, you know, truly need us. I mean, the, the idea of centering compassion as the very key concept in my book is there because I wanted it to be a call to action to all of us to say that this is really the joy 
of doing the best we can and to push ourselves to do better. And I include myself absolutely in that. Well, I think call to action is exactly what, what you've given us. Um, we, we only have three minutes left. Do we have time for a question? Risa? Yes, hi. Um, we do have uh, a couple questions and I'll, I'll put this one forward. So um, Jean wondered, what choices do we have in the foods we provide to our domesticated animal companions? My dog loves vegetables and some fruit, but I don't feel like I have the right to deny him meat flavored food. And I have no ideas about what to offer my cats. Well, I feel pretty strongly that because cats are obligate carnivores, we give them meat. It is hard. I don't like going to the grocery store and buying what I buy for my cats, but until we have alternatives and there are companies working on cultured cellular meat for cats and you know that's coming but until we do i think we have to you know honor honor their diet to keep them healthy if we're going to bring them into our homes and help them in our communities that is one of those uncomfortable moments that lisa's been talking about dogs i think are a different story but i'm not a dog owner anymore um, i do know a lot of friends who have uh, ways of feeding plant-based foods to dogs and they tell me the dogs are happy, but I don't have personal experience with that. Right, thank you, Barbara. Um, I think that, that concludes our time here. It is uh, six o'clock on the dot. Barbara, if thank I could you just so much. Thank you. Say one more thing before yeah. I go. Um, I, if, I wanted to thank people who came out on a Monday at five o'clock to hear both of us talking. And I do have a website, barbarajking.com, and I am very active on Twitter, BJKingApe. So if anybody wants to follow up, please feel free. And I want to thank you so much, Lisa, for such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I could have talked for another hour. And um, maybe you would like to come back as a guest because I think later this summer we're going to be presenting um, our findings of the DC Cat Count in one of these community conversations. Um, and I did just want to mention that we have also a community conversation coming up on June 24th at 5. We'll be talking with Mark Cushing, who is the author of Pet Nation, The Love Affair That Changed. Barbara, this has been such a fun hour. Thank you so, so much. And I hope uh, we can talk again. I will come back anytime you will have me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night, everybody. Bye, Bye everyone.